Well, good evening, Albuquerque. So good to meet all of you and to be together with you and to be sitting under God's word and to be thinking uh, about this theme, wrestling with contentment. And before I, I get there, I just want to say a, a few more words of, of thanks. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming. Uh, I want to say thanks to uh, Pastor Ryan and the staff here at Desert Springs for, for having me, for inviting me. And, um, and thanks, Brother Rick, for sharing uh, the ministry uh, this week. It's a real privilege uh, to be here. I, I feel like having come here, I've been helped with my geography. <laughs> you know, Americans are, are terrible at geography. You, you may or may not know that, but everyone who lives outside of America knows everybody inside of America is lost, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I got my geography lessons from Sunday morning cartoons. Bugs Bunny. <laughs> you know where this is going, right? He burrows and pops up out of the things. I should have taken that left at, at Albuquerque. And it's about the extent of my geography, so it's good to be here and good to be with you guys. Again, my name is Tabidi Anubili. It's an African name, loosely translated. It means I want to be Ryan Kelly when I grow up. You know? <laughs> How many of you, dating myself a little bit here, how many of you remember a 1970s sitcom called The Jeffersons? <laughs> All right, got some Jefferson fans here. <laughs> I grew up on The Jeffersons and Sanford and Son and shows of that sort. And you remember the Jefferson theme song is a theme song that, that actually I learned before I learned any hymns. They, they, <laughs> They took this kind of black gospel choir, kind of joyful, celebrative tune, and, and they wrote these words. Fish don't fry in the kitchen. Beans don't burn on the grill. Took a whole lot of trying just to get up this hill. All right, now. Now we're up in the big leagues. <laughs> Getting our turn at bat. As long as we live, it's you and me, baby. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Oh, well, we're moving on up, moving on up to the east side. <laughs> I did not think this was going to work. <laughs> to a deluxe apartment in the sky. Well, we're moving on up. <laughs> Cross-cultural, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I, I really feel at home now. <laughs> well, the chorus in that song, it, it, it sings about getting our piece of the pie, being in the big leagues, moving on up. And, of course, for George and Wheezy, moving on up included a, a New York luxury condo, owning a chain of dry cleaners. But George was never content. If you remember the show, you remember that he always wanted more. He always wanted to be someone bigger. He always was agitated, angry, arguing. He's the, he's the poster boy of, a, of a, a, a man who's discontent in his soul. He had everything, 
And it was as if he had nothing. I love this line. I'll paraphrase from C.S. Lewis. He says, if you find that nothing satisfies you in this world, the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. Christian discontentment is always, at least in part, a function of short-sightedness. It is, at least in part, a failure to raise our gaze from this world and to fix our eyes upon that world to which we truly belong. It is a failure of the imagination. It is a failure of the heart. It is a failure of yearning and longing and anticipation. It is a failure of looking forward to that world which is to come, where discontentment is doomed. And what we want to do tonight is to look at Revelation chapter 21 beginning at verse 1, down to Revelation 22, verse 6. And we want to consider that of the world. We want, by God's help, by God's grace, by the Spirit's illumination, to to have some some sanctified imagination, to, to perceive and to consider and to imagine and to yearn for that world to which we really belong, that world to which we feel this magnetic pull upward the world that Christ has prepared for us, which is home. If you're in a note-taking type, we have five things to consider in this text. Number one, heaven is a world full of God's promises. Heaven is a world full of God's promises. Number two, heaven is a world full of God's people. Heaven is a world full of God's people. Number three, heaven is a world full of God's glory. Of God's glory. Number four, heaven is a world full of God's presence. His presence. And fifth, heaven is a world full of God's pleasure. Of God's pleasures. Revelation 21 Beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was sitting on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates And at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will they be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Heaven is a world full of God's promises. We see that in verses 1 to 5. Or really we're getting this kind of vision of the marriage of Christ and his people. And maybe as you read the first couple of verses, your mind drifts back to John chapter 14, where the Lord Jesus promises to his disciples that he's going away to prepare a place for them, and he will come back and receive them and take them where he is. I think we're helped if we think about John 14 and think about this text with the, with the ancient Jewish marriage ritual in mind where there would be some betrothal between a young man and a young woman. But the marriage wouldn't commence immediately. He would then go away and prepare a home, usually to build a home somewhere attached to or adjacent to his own father's house. And it would be his father who would determine when he was ready to, prepare, to provide for a wife and could go and commence the wedding itself. Maybe that helps us a little bit, too, with our Lord's words when he says, no man knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man will come except the Father in heaven. Well, now the Father has given the word, and the Son has come to gather his bride. He's prepared his place. See there in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 21, it's a, a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth have passed away and the sea was no more. That, that tumultuous place of separation and conflict is no more. And in verse 2, the bride makes her entrance. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The bride's about to be given away to the groom. That great moment in the wedding ceremony, that, that seems so all of the ceremony kind of builds to, when in her radiance and her splendor, the bride makes her entrance. We have it in verse 2. And notice who officiates the ceremony. In verse 3, it's the Father who sits on the throne. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And really, verses 3 and 4 are a kind of, a kind of vows. Notice what's said there. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have, have passed away. We take our vows in our wedding ceremonies and we say things like this, in sickness and in health, richer for poor, 
in heaven, it's for better and better. In health and health. For richer and richer. The old things have done away. All the tears are wiped with the very hands of God. There's no crying. There's no pain. The former things, the things of the fall, the things that emanate from Genesis 3, the things that dominate the Bible from Genesis 3 to to, to Revelation 20, those things have been wiped away. They've been done away with. They have been baggaged, as it were, and tossed. The new things have come. And we see here the, the consummation of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the dwelling together of God with his people. He will be their God and they shall be his people. The most fundamental promise in the Bible, running from Genesis to Revelation. You remember in, in Genesis 1 and 2, God has prepared a garden and, and he set Adam in it to tend it. And Adam and Eve would attend the garden to subdue the earth and to fill the earth with his glory. And and he walked among them in the cool of the day, God with his people. And Genesis 3 in the fall ruins and ruptures that relationship. And Adam and Eve, our first parents, are expelled from the dwelling place of God. But then what happens? Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abram. He calls a pagan man out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he he takes a Gentile and makes him a Jew. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you a place. And your people will be more numerous than the stars. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And you remember at the end of Genesis, Israel is is in, in slavery in Egypt. And Exodus opens, and God now wants his bride. He wants his people. So he sends Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go that they may worship me. And he leads them out of bondage in Egypt, and he leads them through the wilderness, and he leads them toward the promised land, and he dwells with them by fire and in cloud. And he gives them instructions for for how to camp whenever they camp, such that the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, would be in the middle of God's people. They would be arrayed around him. And they walked by sight, seeing the glory of God. But the tabernacle was a mobile home. <laughs> and one day, a king who used to be a shepherd boy considers all that God has done for him. And he asks himself, How can I live in a palace with? Walls and ceilings and finery. And God dwell in a tabernacle. I'll build him a temple. And God says to him, you've been a man of war. I like your idea, but you won't build it. Your son Solomon would build it. And Solomon builds the the great temple of God and dedicates the temple of God. And the glory of God fills that place. But Ezekiel tells us that Israel's an unfaithful bride. And they break their covenant with God. They break their vows with God. They go, excuse me, whoring after other gods. And in the very temple itself, Ezekiel has a vision of the priests meeting in secret chambers, worshiping things that are not gods. And he sees the glory of God rise above the temple, pause for a moment, and depart. 
and Ichabod is written over that place. Such glory would not be seen again until the opening of the New Testament when the Son of God tabernacled among us in human flesh. The glory of God joined together with the frailty of humanity. He came and he tabernacled among us and he sojourned among us. But then he left. Crucified, buried, and resurrected, ascended into heaven, and he sent forth his spirit. So that now we read in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that you, you Christian, and the church has become the temple of God in whom he lives by his spirit. And as wonderful as that is, that's just a down payment. The Spirit will keep us. And he will lead us safely home. He will preserve us. Until we come to Revelation 21. When all that has happened, which has been a forecasting and a foreshadowing, will really be consummated. The the promises of God to his people to be their God and to live among them. And for them to live with him and to enjoy him as their God is consummated right here. In this marriage in this dwelling, in this being together with God. Heaven is not most fundamentally an ethereal place, but a union, a union between God and his people. And God keeps his promises to his people. Every promise he has ever made to you and me is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And it's fulfillment, it's fulfillment is coming. It's coming. Heaven will be the promises of God expanded to its fullest completion. And expand it again. And again. And again. For all eternity. Can I say a word to anyone here who's perhaps single? And honestly, maybe that's a source of discontentment for you. You want a good thing. To be married. And if your thoughts turn in that direction. There's a disquiet in your heart. There's a, perhaps even a bitterness. Or just a longing. Can I say something to you? It may be that God's plan is that you would only ever have a perfect husband. That will require that you live this life in undivided devotion to the Lord. And that in the fullness of time, if it can be called time, he will be your husband. Now, as wise as I am and good-looking as I am, (laughs) my wife will tell you I'm no perfect husband. She'd tell you, honey, I trade him for Jesus anytime. What would it be 
to arrive in glory and to receive Christ as our groom. Heaven is a place where God's promises are fulfilled, but heaven is a world full of God's people. We see that in verses 6 to 14. See there in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 21, this, this glorious invitation. Verse 5, or, or verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he says, to the thirsty. Boy, if you're thirsty, you're normally discontent, aren't you? I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Can I, can I put this in Ebonics? Can I put this in, in sort of hood speech? God said, I got the hookup. I got the hookup. I got you, dog. Come drink. Come drink. It's free. God's free bounty. It's living water. And again, perhaps you go back to our Lord's earthly ministry and perhaps you're traveling with our Lord and, and those disciples on that dusty road when they, when they stop on their journey by a well. And a woman who had had five husbands comes to the well. And Jesus asks her for water to drink. And, and she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for something to drink? And Jesus says, if you knew what water I could give to you, you would ask me to drink this free living water. He says, come without money, come buy, come receive, come drink of the river of life. And notice there the second invitation, verse 7, the one who conquers will have his heritage. The one who conquers. John tells us in his letter, 1 John, that the ones who conquer, the ones who overcome the world, are those who persevere in faith. And if you come for something as seemingly insignificant as believing, you receive something as glorious as heaven. Come. And then notice there a third time, the invitation in verse 7. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. There are no orphans in heaven. Hear the grand call to adoption. To be owned by God as father. To be loved by God as father. To be received as children into his family. Heaven is this place where we are united to Christ and united to God. Not only as a bride, but we are welcomed into the family as sons and daughters. We're home. And notice how full of heaven, or how full of God's people heaven will be. Notice there in verses 9 to 14, this description of the city. We won't belabor the, the symbolism and things of that sort, but, but I want us to consider here how, how John is, verse 10, taken up to a great high mountain. Some things are so vast they require height and distance to see. He's, he's raised up to this great high mountain. And notice in verse 9 who he is given to see. He says, come, the angel says, I will show you the bride, the, the wife of the lamb. 
This is marvelous. Sometimes when we have weddings at our church, or most all the time we have weddings at our church, we will sequester the, the bride and her party in the choir room, and they do all the things that women do, trimming and clipping and getting ready and all that good stuff. And, and us guys, we'll, we'll go up into my office and we'll talk about the game and, and we, you know, sort of get ready. But, but invariably, as the hour approaches, um, I, I will pray with the guys and I'll leave the guys and I'll go pray with the bride. I get to go into that room where so much feminine chaos has been happening. (laughs) And we're at the appointed hour, and she's ready, and she's radiant. I get a sneak peek, and John has been invited into the bridal's ready room, and he sees the bride. And what he sees of the bride is her her perfection, her completion, the cubicle shape of, of this city that has come down, the, the, the various jewels that, that bedeck her, and um, the, the various numbers here used symbolically are, are all representations of the fullness of God's people. You know, beloved, if you are Christ, you won't miss heaven. You won't miss out on heaven. You won't fail to enter heaven. You won't fail to be a part of this city. You will not fail to be a part of the bride if you are Christ. For Christ will not lose you. Nothing will pluck you from his hands. Nothing will pluck you from the Father's hands. Nothing will separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. You have become more than conquerors. And this vision that John gives us, that God inspires, this is your future, beloved. This is your future. Now, perhaps you're here and you're not yet a Christian. And you're listening to this description of God's love and God's adoption and, and as it were, kind of being married to God. Can I point you to just a few sober verses in this text for you to consider? There is such a thing as being outside of this city. It's not a nice place. Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. It's what we commonly call hell. It's the place of God's final judgment. It's not where you wish to be. Or in chapter 22, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed in this city, in this place. Beloved, I I want you to understand it. If you're not yet a Christian, what's said here in verse 8 It's actually a reference to you. Now please don't hear that as some Christian pastor being judgmental. Please hear it in light of the invitation given in verses 7 and 6. Please hear it as an attempt to, in love, say something unpleasant to you so that with hope you might receive what is ultimately most pleasant. 
It's the humility of recognizing that we are, we are cowards and, and we are murderers and we are sexually immoral. And if none of those you feel like describe you, then that last one, we are all liars. It's the humility of recognizing that these things are true of us. And try as we might, we cannot escape them. And God is right to judge us for them. It's the humility to admit that which leads to the glorious life of forgiveness and love with God. For it's because of those very things that Christ came into the world and gave himself as a sacrifice. He died for everything that's listed in verse 8. He's died for everything that's listed in your spiritual biography of sin and my spiritual biography of sin. It was his purpose to remove our sin from us and to give to us his own righteousness. It was his purpose to atone for our sins, to satisfy God's wrath against us because of our sin and to bring us to God not trembling in fear of God's judgment, but to bring us to God's standing confident of God's love because we have received his son. So I plead with you, trust in this Jesus, the son of God, who died on the cross to pay for your sins and rose three days later for your justification so that you would be right with God and who is coming again to receive his bride. Accept his proposal and live with him in his love. Heaven is a world full of God's people and not one of us will miss it if we are Christ. Heaven, number three, is a world full of God's glory. We see that throughout the passage, but I'm thinking here primarily of, of verses 15 to 21. Heaven is this place where we will, in fact, share in God's glory. Notice in verse 9, the angel says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Then notice in verse 10, he shows him the holy city, Jerusalem. He's doing what my English teacher told me never to do. He's mixing metaphors, right? But he's describing the same thing. I wish I had been a Christian as a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, and my teacher told me never to mix metaphors. I said, well, you're not a very biblical Christian, are you? you know, <laughs> Let's read Revelation, you know. <laughs> but he mixes the metaphors there. Then notice what he says in verse 11 of chapter 21. That this same lamb, or, or bride, excuse me, this same city, verse 11, Having the glory of God. Its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Philippians 1, 6 makes a promise to us. You'll know this verse. He who began a good work in you will carry it on into completion to the day of Christ Jesus. The question is, well, how does he do that? How does God, who began a work in his people, how will he carry it on to completion? How will it be accomplished? Now, remember, the, 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 the dominant sort of metaphor in this passage is the metaphor of marriage. So one might think of Ephesians 5, where we're told that Christ 
washes his bride in the water of the word. Where we're told that he, he washes her there to such an extent that he might present her to himself. That he might receive her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's by the, it's by the ceremonial bathing of his bride in his word. He is readying us to share in his glory, in his splendor. And not only that, we're told precisely at its completion how the completion happens. We'll think about this later, Lord willing, but 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Remember what John says there, beloved, we, we do not know what we will be. He says, we do know this, that when he appears, we shall see him, and seeing him, we shall be like him. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself. It's the looking forward to the coming of Christ. It's the looking forward to the scene of Christ that in this life has a purifying effect on the bride of Christ. And when Christ comes, in actual fact, splits the sky, shouts and blows the trumpet, and gathers his bride, every eye will see him. The Christian eye will see him and something exquisite will happen. The very act of laying our eyes on this Christ will have the effect of transforming us into his likeness and glory. You see, in this marriage, as stunning as the bride is, the one that we really want to see is the groom. It's the bride who's looking for the groom. It's the bride who enters from heaven, descends, and she's searching to lay hold of the face of her beloved. And she sees him, and she shares in his glory. All that's written here in the description, the, the various jewels and the, and the various stones and, 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 the, and the gold and the translucent quality of the gold, all of this is speaking in various metaphorical ways of the, of the glory that we will share with Christ as his bride. How kind of the Lord, the one who says he will share his glory with no other, to bring us finally into this glory, to share in his beauty and his radiance. I think this means in part we should love the church. We should love our churches. There are no perfect churches, only churches becoming glorious. And all of our blemishes are being washed away. All, all of our wrinkles are being smooth without cream. You know, all of our blemishes are being not airbrushed, but sanctified purified more deeply and, and transformed. And, and inside of us is the, is the outworking of this, this joy and this glory that is inexpressible, that, that in the end we will have metamorphized in a, in a certain kind of way. We will have seen the reflection of God's glory in his own face, and, and seeing that will cause us to, to share finally and perfectly in his very glory. That's what's happening in your church. That's what's happening in every church of God. We are being made to share 
in the glory of God. Love the church. Adore her. Love your place in her. It is splendid. How kind of the Lord to place his beauty on his people. Number four, heaven is a world full of God's presence. See that there in verses 22 to 27. You see there in verse 22, God and the Lamb are the temple of that place. Verse 23, God is the light of that place. Verse 24, God is the one to whom all honor is brought in that place. Verses 25 to to 27, God really is is the purity of that place. Because he's there, there is nothing unclean that will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does, not, who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What, what you have there is the, is the fullness of, of God's presence. He's the center of worship in heaven. He is the, he is the temple of that place. And, and his light illumines that place such that there is no darkness. There is no time for the deeds of darkness. For the glory of God has chased the darkness from that place forever. And such is the way of his purity. And notice now, God's people there are in God's presence. We see the completion, perhaps, of what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9. When he says that the church is a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. No wonder we see these stones on this city reminding us of the, of the priest in the Old Testament who on his ephod had, had a stone each for the 12 tribes of Israel and he carried the 12 tribes of Israel on his breast, on his heart to God and on his shoulders to God. And he wore on his, on his turban a, a plaque that says, Holy unto the Lord. And here now all God's people have become God's priests and all God's people are forever in the presence of God. Wearing, as it were, the the clothing of the priest and offering, as it were, the the praises of the priest, ministering to God all day. And I would say all night, but there ain't no night. (laughs) Can you imagine what it will be like to always be in the presence of God and the Lamb. In this life, we feel what the old divines called spiritual desertions. The sense that God's presence isn't felt or known. The troubling sense that our prayers never get past the ceiling. In this life, we we feel our warfare. We feel our struggle with the world and the flesh and the devil. And we are are made to be aware of our our sometimes capitulation, sometimes our failure. 
Our imperfections haunt us. I love the words that are used sometimes in, in communion services. When we confess our sins and we say the, the thought of them or the remembrance of them grieve us. Anybody know that feeling? Or anybody struggle with doubt? Anybody struggle with a lack of assurance? You find yourself constantly praying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And you find yourself constantly plagued with the, with the uncertainty that arises out of the corruptions of, of our flesh and this world and our, and our sojourn with Christ. We despair. And we're discontent. Never again in the presence of God. Our faith will be made sight. Our, our battle with sin will be finally and fully completed. And we will be victorious. And there'll be no room for doubt. For all the fullness of the truth of God will be on display before us in plain daylight always. And our weak and fleeting hearts will be shored up with the unmediated fullness of God's love and presence. What will it be like to have a heart that never faints before God? To have a heart that's always satisfied with God? We can live so long sometimes without satisfaction we can forget what it felt like. We're going to live so long with satisfaction we'll forget we were ever dissatisfied. Heaven is a place full of God's presence. And because of that, number five, heaven is a place full of God's pleasures. To state it more accurately, it's a place that's full of pleasure in God. And everything that's happening in our Christian life, this side of glory, and everything that's given to us as amenities, that side of glory, are, are meant to enhance our enjoyment of God forever. And so see here the things that are laid out before us. Chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, the, the river of life running in the middle of the street of that city. The tree of life, which Adam and Eve forsook in the garden given to us in this city. His leaves are for the healing of the nations. Chapter 22, verse 3, the, the end of the curse. There, the, the throne of God, his majesty, his rule, his sovereignty seen. The reign of God, chapter 22, verse 5. But you know what's ultimate in this passage? Chapter 22, verse 4. They will see his face. Oh, to look upon him. To look fully in his glorious face. To see him unmediated by faith with glorified eyes. With a capacity to be in his presence and not consumed. 
reflecting back to him the very glory that he has clothed us with. And this, beloved, is the greatest hope of the Bible. It's to see the, the face of God. You remember Moses' plea in Exodus 33? I, I want to see your glory. I, I want to I see your face. You remember what God told Moses? You, you, can't, you can't see me and live, man. I'll burn you up, man. <laughs> I didn't know God was from my neighborhood, did you? <laughs> hey, you remember what he does? He, he takes Moses and he sits him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by and Moses sees his hind parts. He sees the backside of God's glory. The prayer of Moses, the desire of Moses, the, the longing, the yearning of Moses wasn't to be the great prophet of Israel. It wasn't to be the great deliverer of Israel. It wasn't to be some great man himself. It wasn't even to be content in that role as great as it was. His great yearning, his great desire was to behold the face of God. There is a holy discontent. Is that discontent we feel and ought to feel until we see him face to face. And that wasn't just, just Moses' yearning, it was also David's. You remember in the 17th Psalm, verse 15, where, where David says something remarkable. He, he anticipates his death and he says, I, when I awake, he's anticipating now his resurrection. He says, I, I will see you my righteousness, and I will be satisfied. It's got a longing that's stronger than the grave to see the face of God and be satisfied. You remember the beatitude in Matthew 5, 8, where we are promised that we will see God. And you recall, as already mentioned, 1 John 3, 2 and 3, that we're going to see him. And seeing him, we're going to be like him. The pleasure of heaven, the apex of the pleasure of heaven, will be to see the face of God in a never-ending always expanding enjoyment. It's the fulfillment of that blessing in number six, where, where, where Moses is told to bless Israel by saying, in part, may God lift his countenance toward you. That is, as it were, the, the greatest blessing that the, that the Hebrew mind could conceive of is to, is to, to see the, the very face of God. And of course, to have God turn his face away would then be the greatest curse of God. And so we sing in the hymn of the Father turning his face away from the Son. Why? Oh, beloved, why? So that he may turn his face toward us. And that we might have this hope of seeing him in his glory beholding him and experiencing as 
Sam Storms, reflecting on Jonathan Edwards, experiencing this increased capacity for joy, such that heaven, according to Edwards, would be this kind of place where we would be in this perpetual cycle of, of longing for God and having that longing satisfied. And the satisfaction of that longing would create yet more longing, and that longing would be satisfied. And so we would forever be in this cycle of desiring God and seeing God and being satisfied. And in this glorious place with these glorified bodies and this glorified existence, we would have now this capacity for an ever-expanding joy. So that the joy and the pleasure of heaven would be ballooning and swelling and expanding and deepening and heightening and widening and being enriched and, and, and embellished and, and more ornate and, and on and on and on for all eternity. Are you ready for increasing glorious satisfaction? Look to Christ and his coming. Long to see his face. Long for this world full of the pleasures of God. God has put our happiness beyond the reach of our enemies by putting our happiness in himself. That's where we find contentment. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have prepared a place for us. And we lay hold to your promise that you will come and receive us and take us to be with you where you are. We long, O oh Lord, for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We long, O oh Lord, for the consummation of the, of the wedding of the bride of Christ with Christ the groom. We long to be with you in your presence, sharing in your glory, satisfied with you. Lord, we pray that this longing would eclipse all of our other longings. Lord, that we would look so steadily and look so intently and earnestly and eagerly to your coming. That we would seem to be more in heaven before heaven is in us. That we would seem, O oh Lord, to share more and more in your glory before we even see it. But Lord, we long to see it. And so we say, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Gather your bride. Satisfy us with yourself. And Father, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.